Uh, I'm going to read our opening text this morning. If you'd like to read it along with me, uh, the text this morning will be from Matthew chapter 25. And I'm going to be reading beginning in verse 34. I'm excited for Todd to come and share with you this morning. This is going to be a brief step aside uh, from our study series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, Todd has something special to share with you this morning, and we're very excited as the leadership team of Transform for him to share this and um, to see the Lord take us into a new phase of ministry. This really is going to be um, ascending into a new um, direction for us and a new prayerfully um, effectiveness in our community, not only the church community, but in the community abroad. This is what the opening text that Todd's requested me to read says. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mike. Well, good morning, everyone. Again, my name is Todd Steele. I'm one of the elders here at Transform. Um, And we are going to have kind of a bit of a different morning this morning. And I'm super excited about it. Today we get to confirm our deacon team. Um, So before we do that, we're going to take a break from our usual study through the book of Mark, like Mike was saying, and we're going to take a look at what deacons are. So deacons, um, if you don't know, are a leadership office in the church whose responsibility is to handle and minister to the practical and logistical needs of the church and the community that that specific church is ministering to. Um, These are the people who take care of the hungry and take care of the cold. These are the people that are practically serving, as as Mike read in Matthew, um, those who are in need. And if you think, hey, sweet, um, I'm not a deacon, I'm not in this specific field of ministry, uh, I get to sit back and learn about something that isn't going to apply to me. Uh, Prepare to be disappointed. Um, Because the word deacon is just an English transliteration of the word diakonos, which means servant. And there should be a slide for that, Jonah. Um, And that word is found all over the New Testament referring to some way or the other, using different English words, referring to all followers of Jesus. We are all servants of Jesus. So why the distinction between this single group of people? Because the deacons are the ones who lead by example. 
our group of deacons that will be confirming today at the end of service, they've already been doing this work in some capacity. We're just confirming what we already see the Lord doing in them. What we're doing today is twofold. First is what I just said, to confirm before the Lord what we already see them doing. And two, to point them out to you so that you may follow their example. I've, they, in fact, we've already told them that if they're putting together projects or putting together a team to do some sort of ministry service and they need extra people, they're not to come talk to myself or Mike or the other elders or the other deacons. They're to come get you guys and recruit you guys. Not because we're above it, not because we can't get our hands dirty. We do get our hands dirty. We should get our hands dirty. We shouldn't be afraid of hard work. But it is the primary responsibility of the leadership of any church to show who the flock to show the flock who Jesus is and how to follow him. And what did Jesus do? He fed hungry people. He healed the sick. And then eventually he died on a cross for all of us. Jesus lived, Jesus both lived and died for people, for us. And if we were to follow Messiah Jesus, then we must also be willing to live and to die for people. So why, why are we going to spend a whole Sunday on this? I, we could spend 15 minutes, we could pray over them, and then we could hop back in the book of Mark. Uh, why are we har harping on this? As we began to look into this ministry, and as we began to set this up as to what deacons are, and what scripture had to say about it, it really became apparent to myself and the rest of the leadership team that the traditions we come from have not always got it right in this area of ministry. Um, I'll be clear, I have a deep love and admiration for the churches which I was raised, for the tradition in which I come from, and which I know a lot of us here come from the same sort of traditions in churches. Um, I'm not trying to sling mud at anybody um, or at any other believers. This, it would be dishonoring to the text we're going to look at this morning to do so. Um, but all the various traditions within the big C church, within the large body of Christ, are ultimately led by human beings. If you think the leadership here is perfect, then you haven't spent enough time with us. <laughs> um, Everyone's missing something, and, and I think that this is something that we haven't always got right every time. But I do think that the diminishing of the deacon ministry in certain streams of Christianity is simply an overcorrection that was based on a good instinct. Um, if you're a Protestant and you're within the family tree of church traditions that then you are connected to a movement whose purpose was to reject the notion that the church had been struggling with for a long time, and it still often struggles with, that salvation by grace through faith was somehow bundled with the works you perform here on earth. That somehow your works and good deeds made you saved or a true Christian. And that's not biblical at all. Isaiah 64, 6 says all of us have become something unclean and all our righteous acts are like polluted garments. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. 
And Ephesians 2 says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. If you believe that Jesus of Nazareth of Nazareth was both fully God and fully man, one part of the three-part triune Godhead, he lived a perfect life, he was executed on a cross, he rose again on the third day, and he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he's coming back one day. You're a Christian. You're in. You're a believer. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. End of discussion. There is no work that you can perform that will earn your way into the kingdom of heaven. And there's no sin that's going to get you kicked out. However, it is also not biblical to say that our actions here on earth don't matter at all. Right? James chapter 2 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you say to him, Go in peace, stay warm and well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. And then Romans chapter 5 says this, 5 and 6 say this, The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died in sin still live in it? So the valley of extremes, in the valley of extremes flows the river of truth. You are saved by Jesus, by grace through faith in him. There's no work you can do that can change that. And if, if you're not, come talk to us. But also, Jesus loved everyone. So having a relationship with him also means loving everyone too. So with all of that being said, we're going to look at, the, at Acts chapter 6 today. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the book of Acts is the second part to the two-part volume written by Luke. Um, first being the Gospel of Luke, the second volume being Acts, which is the history of the beginning years of the church. The first few years um, after the resurrection and ascendance of Jesus, of the apostles leading the church. Um, it's a wild time. People are being filled with the Holy Spirit. People are getting saved in thousands. They're selling their possessions and sharing them with all who are in need. So, Acts chapter 6, I'll read verses 1 through 7. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint amongst the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews, and their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up the preaching of the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select amongst you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Carninius, 
and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples of Jerusalem increased greatly in number. And a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your word to be on us. I pray for you to change hearts. I pray for you to make us look more like you, to love those and care for those that you love and care for. Uh, Lord, I feel weak today. I pray you would use me in your weakness. I pray you would be our focus today. In Jesus' name. So in the days of the early church, and really for uh, most of history, even in some parts of the world today, if you're a widow with no adult sons and no son-in-laws, no other family to take care of you, you had no real way to provide for yourself. Uh, uh, the widow in these days was reliant on the kindness of strangers. And the church is the first institution... Did I just do something? Okay. <laughs> the church is the first institution to actively provide for widows who had no other family to provide for them. But a problem arises along cultural and ethnic lines. The Hebraic widows are being favored in the distribution over the Hellenistic widows. So what are these two, two categories? Uh, first off, the Hebraic Jews were Jews who lived in and were from the historic nation of Israel. They uh, lived close to Jerusalem. They mostly spoke Aramaic. They were um, traditional Second Temple Jews as we know them in history. The Hellenistic Jews were from everywhere else across the Roman Empire. Uh, they were historically, culturally more Greek. They primarily spoke Greek. Um, with maybe Latin as a second language, but not all of them knew it. Um, and they were culturally distinct from the, the Jews of the local area. And, and we're in Jerusalem at this point. The church really only exists in Jerusalem at this point in Acts. Um, so they didn't just speak a different language. They had a different culture. They had different tra traditions. They had a different rhythm of doing things, which brought about some difficulties to this new dynamic of the church that is supposed to be living as one family. And this is the first difficulty, that the culturally Greek widows were getting shorted by the culturally Jewish members. But the Hellenists did the right thing. They went to seek the counsel of the apostles. They went to solve the issues. I think it's become a trend today that when disunity arrives, when disagreement arises, the solution is simply to go find a new church, to go find a new place where that fits more my vibe and how I feel and things to make me happy. You know, we, I think we've all heard the old joke about the Christian that gets stranded on the desert island and after many years he gets rescued and the rescuers see two huts on the beach and and they ask, what are those? And he goes, well, the first one's the church I'm going to now. The, the other building is a church I used to go to. Um, 
Scripture teaches that the church is a family and we're to treat each other the way a family is supposed to treat each other. Um, I say supposed to because we all have complicated families and, and many of us do not come from families that we, we got treated the way a family is supposed to act. But the church is supposed to be that institution by Jesus that heals those wounds. I'm not saying that there aren't legitimately reasons to leave a church. There certainly are. But if repentance and reconciliation is possible, that has to be tried first. That has to be attempted. We have to try to fix things with each other. Because Scripture calls us brother and sister. If every time, like, my brother vaguely annoyed me, and he's 16, so it happens, um, <laughs> I decided, yep, we're not talking anymore. Like, what kind of family would I be to him? In fact, in our text this morning, the Hellenists, they're not even from Jerusalem. They're not even from this area. It would be super easy for them to pick up their stuff and go back home and start their own thing, maybe a more Greekified version of the church. But instead, what they do, they go to the apostles. They try to solve the issue. They try to rectify. They try to repent. So then how do the apostles respond? Verse 2, the twelve sisters your sepals and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching, to, to wait on elect from elves, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The apostles acknowledge the problem and they implement a plan that will allow them to continue to prioritize what God has called them to do while also making sure that the problem itself is taken care of. While it is vital that these widows receive the necessary provisions, provisions, it is also vital that the apostles teach what the word of God says. This is a delicate balance that the church is meant to strike both institutionally and organically. The word of God must be taught. It must be central and regular in our rhythms of the church. In fact, the wisdom of the scriptures teaches us how to take care of these practical issues. It teaches us how to, how to love and take care of people in a way that is honoring to God. Within the pages of Scripture is the wisdom and knowledge of how Jesus taught and loved people. And without that, we're lost. Without the Word of God, we're the blind leading the blind. The apostles know this and they teach this. But they also know the seriousness of the breaking of unity between the Hellenists and the Hebraic believers. So they opt to appoint the first official deacons. And notice their criteria. Good reputation, full of the spirit of wisdom. What is important to the apostles in finding these men is character. They want to make sure they have good character. It's not based on ability. It's not based on how handsome they are. It's like when God was choosing David to be king, right? Back in 1 Samuel. Jesse brings out all of his older sons in front of Samuel. God rejects all of them. Jesse doesn't even bother to bring out David, the youngest. God rejects all of them and chooses David. And what does he say to Samuel? Do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. The Lord saw David's heart. 
The Lord sees our hearts. And that's what matters when it comes to serving. Not what we can do, not what we like to do, but if we have the character, if we're full of the Spirit and a good reputation. Because could somebody, somebody of low character could technically take care of this issue, right? Somebody who didn't have a good attitude, somebody who didn't much care for a widow could technically move food from one pile of food into the hands of a widow. That is technically something that could happen. But the core job is to show the church how Jesus loved people through these works, and that takes someone who has good reputation and is full of the spirit of wisdom. I don't usually do regular notes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a millennial. I don't know what to do if I don't have a tablet in my hand. Um, Verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So, if, if we spoke the original language of the Bible, uh, which is uh, of the New Testament, is, is Koine Greek, we would notice something specific about this list of names, that they are all Greek. That they, they, these are all Greek men. They are most likely uh, Hellenists or Greeks themselves. The Greek widows that are being overlooked, and so therefore Greek men are appointed to solve the issue. These Greek men would, of course, make sure that the widows in their personal circle would be taken care of, but having felt the pain of being overlooked and being disciples of Jesus themselves, they would not seek vengeance, obviously, and start to be apathetic towards the Hebraic widows. They would prioritize taking care of both the Hebrew widows and the Greek widows. Deacons will use their unique giftings and skills to lead the body in serving each other and the community around them. Again, as examples for the rest of us, to show us how it's done. We all have unique gifting, skills, and experiences that the Lord has given us that prepare us and equip us for our own unique callings to serve him. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I think speaks to this, and I'm actually, I'm going to read the whole chapter. Um, that's a lot of text on the screen, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, and, and, and Joan, it's, it's, it's three slides, but don't worry about it. <laughs> so anyway, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you used to be enticed and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is cursed. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God. Works all of them in each person. But the same God works all of them in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. 
to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the performing of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretations of tongues. One and the same Spirit is active in these and all of these, distributing to each person as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into the body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all given to the Spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one unique part, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It is not for that reason any less a part of the body. And the ear, and if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It is not for that reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as God, but as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the hand cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor, and our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and individual members of it. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, leading, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But the desire of the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. One unified body, many unique parts that all serve a different purpose, but ultimately serve to glorify God. It is unified diversity. Each one of us has been uniquely designed by God to serve a special purpose and the unity with the rest of the body. Yes, you are a special snowflake. Um, <laughs> But it's in service to God Almighty. I think a tiny, weak, easily memorable thing is, is a good thing to compare us to, to the Lord Almighty, right? So as the deacons serve and we serve alongside them, we learn our skills, our gifts, as we watch them use ours, as we watch them use theirs. Finally, verse 7. Sorry, again. Okay, yeah, we're good. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. 
and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. What's interesting about that last verse this morning is if you've read through the opening chapters of Acts up until 6, you will read that Peter and the other apostles um, have had a little bit of a dialogue with the Jewish leadership of the time. Um, dialogue is a, I use that word loosely because most of their conversations ended up with them being imprisoned or flogged. <laughs> but here in Acts 6, we see the commissioning of the deacons and the outward work they performed not only unified the existing church, but helped to spread the word and grow it as well even to many of the priests who had set themselves up as enemies of the church. I, personally, I really like apologetics. I like to go on YouTube um, and look up debates and arguments. Um, I like guys like William Wood Craig, J. Warner Wallace, Frank Turek, all great apologists, really smart guys, and they really love the Lord. I liked to watch the debates and think about the logical arguments of why Christianity works. And we should have a base understanding of apologetics. Uh, Peter says, be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But I wonder if we focus too much on the logical arguments and hopes that we will win people over as opposed to simply and diligently loving and serving those people. If I can just prove myself that I'm smarter than this person, then they'll become a Christian. Does that sound like an attitude about serving Jesus, or does it sound like an attitude about serving yourself? If I can only get my coworker to read mere Christianity, then he'd accept Jesus. I love C.S. Lewis, don't get me wrong. But have you just tried being a better coworker? Have you just tried serving that person, serving that person lovingly, sacrificially, at your own expense for the simple fact that you love Jesus and Jesus loves that coworker? Then after that, we go about comparing uh, the transcendental argument with the presuppositional argument. So I just read, I just took a very long time to read 1 Corinthians 12. What comes after 1 Corinthians 12? Hey, good job. <laughs> what is 1 Corinthians 13 about? Yeah. So in the context of 12, that's of 1 Corinthians 12, it's just talking about, that's talking about our unique spiritual gifts. Paul then continues and says, if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy and clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. We can be as smart as we want to be. We can be as skilled as we want to be. And those are great things that God has gifted us with. But if we do not have love, we sound like the monkey with the symbols. If we do not have love, it's for nothing. Because Jesus came to love us, to die on a cross for us. And we're to follow him and his, and his example.
And this is what deacons are here to do. They're here to show us how to practically love each other and our neighbors, how to hold the church together in unity, and how to bring more into the family. These are the leaders of our church that love people. And we're elders are to love people as well, too. We're not exempt. That's not what I'm saying. But if we're doing our job, we're spending time with you guys. We're shepherding the flock. Who's out there leading the flock and shepherding the rest of the community? Who's out there loving that community, even upon, upon the point of death? The following chapter, or not the following, the following section in Acts, Stephen preaches probably one of the best sermons in the New Testament and is killed for it. He loved people unto death. Um, and I did bring that part up after all the deacons said yes, if, if you're wondering. <laughs> <laughs> to be a Christian and to be a follower of Christ is to live and to love people, to live for people, and to even die for them. And the leadership of the church, this responsibility falls on us, on the elders and the deacons, are to form that and be an example of that. So as we close, uh, could I have our elders and all of our deacons come up, and we're going to pray over them.